Very good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Crescent Church Online. Today, we reach the end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I've certainly been blessed by this series. I hope you guys have as well. One of the things I've been really struck by is just how beautiful life in this Christian counterculture can actually be. It's truly wonderful, isn't it? The vision that Jesus sets out. It's morally beautiful. And one of the things I also love about this sermon is the fact that it's preached by one who is utterly consistent with the principles he sets out, as he calls us away from hypocrisy, as he calls us to radical obedience. These are things that he is living out in his own life. And the ultimate example of that is him, is the Lord Jesus Christ being obedient to death, even the death of a cross. And that's what we're going to sing about as, as we sing our first song today. We're going to thank the Lord for the cross. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Let's join together and sing praise to our God and to the Lord Jesus Christ for his, and give him thanks for his radical obedience.
We're going to turn to our God in prayer now. What a privilege it is to be able to come before our creator and bring our praise and petitions to him. Well, we're so blessed. Let's pray to our great God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross, for the great price that was paid by your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What love, what kindness, Lord, that you would redeem us at such a cost. As Christians, we've been washed and cleansed from all our sin and shame. What freedom we have, Father. We've been brought into your family. We've been brought into your embrace. We're immensely privileged. We're greatly blessed. Father, the spotless lamb is now seated at your right hand. He has won the ultimate victory and we acknowledge him as worthy, as the king of kings, as the Lord of lords. And as we sit under the sound of your word this morning, Father, in a world of confusion, a world of uncertainty, Lord, may our hearts burn within us. May we long to know Christ. May he dwell in our hearts through faith. May we be captivated by the Christian counterculture he lays out before us. May we hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we be rooted and established in love and have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Lord, raise our eyes to heaven and may the fleeting worries and concerns of this life fade away in the light of your presence. Father, do a work in us, we pray, to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' worthy name we pray. Amen. Let's sing again and and praise the Lord Jesus Christ as we sing Light of the World.
Alex Cullen is now going to read to us from God's Word. He's going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. And then after Alex has read, Tim Graham is going to minister to us from God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. One of the interesting things about stories, whether told via a novel or a movie, is that the story can end in a whole bunch of alternative different ways. I can vaguely remember when DVDs were first released and you got all these extra bonus features like the director's commentary or interviews with the makers. Uh, And one of the interesting things was that they would discuss alternative endings and your favorite character might have been killed off or so-and-so might have ended up married together. And you could imagine how the story could have ended up differently. You can go nuts. It's all made up. But here uh, in chapter 7, as we have just read, we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, our Lord and teacher, is going to present us with two starkly contrasting and only two alternative endings that we can take from here. So where have we got to here in the Sermon on the Mount? In five weeks, we've covered quite a lot of ground. Uh, You may remember that Jim kicked us off back in chapter 5. And he introduced us to this great sermon of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. uh, As he taught us that true life and living is found in an intimate relationship with our Father in heaven. And that the Lord is inviting us in this sermon to have our hearts changed and to develop the beauty of the character of our Heavenly Father. A heart that develops internal purity and doesn't focus on external actions, that seeks consistent moral living and doesn't look for the exceptions or excuses. 
a heart that overflows with generous grace and doesn't set limits. And then in chapter 6, Ollie showed us how that Jesus taught us not to practice our righteousness to be seen by others, but to be seen by our heavenly Father. For there in heaven is where our true reward would be found. At the end of chapter 6, David showed us that Christ was teaching us to prioritize eternal treasure and to resist anxiety by entrusting ourselves and our daily needs to our heavenly Father. And then finally, with Nick last week, we learned not to be marked by harsh and self-righteous judgment, but rather to embrace the duty to help and to love others. And this has been this beautiful portrayal, but it's not an unrealistic, ideal lifestyle, an aspirational poem. This is Jesus Christ's manifesto for real, practical living in his kingdom. It is the genuine characteristics of those who have come into the heavenly family, who become apprentices under the charge of Jesus Christ and fulfill the eternal purposes of God. And as Jesus here concludes, it's as if we've come to this fork in the road. Where do we go from here? Well, to finish up in the passage we have before us this morning, Jesus finishes by giving us these three pictures. And each one of them is made up of two contrasts given as a warning. Firstly, we have a pair of gates and their paths, a pair of trees and their fruits, and a pair, a contrast of builders and their houses. And each time the, the contrasts are stark, they are by definition exclusive. exclusive. It's, it's either or. And the passage is sobering. And over 10 times in the original language, we get the same Greek word for doing, for action, obedience. You'll see it there if you drop your eye to verse number 17. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, literally does good fruit. Verse 21, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. You see, these stark pictures that Jesus gives us show us that we can respond to Jesus in only one of two ways. Either we listen to Jesus and do, we obey, which leads to life, or we merely listen without action, without obedience, which leads to destruction. The stakes are high. The implications are long-lasting. We either trust Jesus and do his word, or if we don't do his word, then how can we claim to trust him? What are you going to do with the words of Jesus? Firstly then, we look at verse 13 and 14, two gates and their pathways. Here Jesus warns that there are only two directions we can go. We are in a time that affords more choices uh, and offers more choices than ever before, whether it's your career choice, traveling choices, global pandemic not included, social choices, and maybe not to be presumptuous, choice in life partner. Consequently, 
many of us are, are sort of crippled by all these choices. And, and there's a, a crippling fear of missing out such that we try and sort of avoid commitment, making choices, offend no one, miss out on as little as possible. We want to remain on committed for as long as possible. But that's not going to be the case here with Jesus. We can see from this picture that he paints in verse 13 and 14, we can respond to him in only one of two possible ways. And they're chalk and cheese. Either it's the wide gate, which leads onto the wide pathway, and it's popular with many, but it leads to destruction. Or the narrow gate, which leads to the hard pathway, which seemingly has few, but leads to life. And in verse number 13, Jesus is emphatic. He is direct. He is plain. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. You know, narrowness is not a great word nowadays, is it? Unfortunately to many in 2020, it has the implications of being obnoxious and, and sort of proud, narrow. But that, of course, is, is not the case for the individual coming to respond to Jesus. If we remember back what we described as the starting line in chapter five, the first of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This small gate is hard to pass through because it requires recognition of our complete and utter spiritual poverty. It requires humility and repentance of heart Following the way of Jesus means putting away obnoxiousness and selfishness and pride and ambition for selfishness, for, for self-reliance, self-sufficiency. To go through this narrow gate is difficult. It, it contrasts, of course, to the broad gate, which, which actually seemingly initially might seem more welcoming. It demands nothing. It's nice and wide, so it's super accommodating. It would never challenge you or ask you to change just bring your, your, your baggage, your, your pride, your self-righteousness, whatever you've got. Come as you are, stay as you are. You do you. And the path it opens out into, it's plenty popular and it's, it's, it's plenty big enough. You can move around and avoid difficulties, try and find a more preferable area, find better travel buddies, follow your feelings. It's permissive, allows for self-love personal ambition, whatever comes naturally, whatever feels good, there's space for it on the wide and broad pathway. The narrow pathway through that narrow gate that requires humility and repentance. Well, Jesus is quite clear about it. It is hard. It doesn't have the same flexibility or space as the wide road, and it's sparsely populated. You can't just Stick it into sixth gear and cruise at 70. It's like a tight country road that requires attention. It's harder to evade the difficulties on the narrow road or avoid the enemies. There's no room for extra indulgence, extra weight, and it will challenge our self-destructive baggage. At this stage, it's pretty obvious that Jesus isn't a marketing guru trying to sell, sell, sell. He's given us truth. But like one of those tough goat paths up the side of the Mourn Mountains, the destination is all part of the equation when considering the hardship of the narrow climb. The majesty of the pinnacle will motivate the toil 
to climb the hard and narrow path. And so here too, the destinations are critical because they are ultimate. All roads don't lead to the same place. The broad path leads to destruction and the narrow path leads to life. The late John Stott says of this description, that of destruction, it is a prospect too awful to contemplate without tears. For the broad road is suicide road. The broad road is suicide road. A future cut off from the source of every good and perfect gift. A future without love and loveliness, without beauty and truth and joy and peace and hope and that future forever. Embracing selfishness ends in self-destruction. In contrast, then, eternal life, life shared with our Heavenly Father, forever secure, loved and cared for, life where we will see and share in His glory, life as He designed it to be lived and enjoyed in its fullness. As the hymn says, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. We get a taste of this life now. But what will it be to bask in the beauty and share in the joy of the goodness of the life of God for eternity? The two paths, therefore, the two gates, the two paths. And Jesus warns us here there are only two directions in which we can go. There is no middle way. So let me ask you this morning, very simply, are you on the narrow road have you come humbled, broken over your sin and repentant? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? If not, why not repent and believe? Come through the narrow gate for true life today. And Christian, have you remembered how you came through that narrow gate? And yes, the way of truth is narrow and it will get hard. But remember, Jesus pioneered the way for us and opened up the way through his self-sacrifice, his own sacrifice of love. Remember later in this gospel, speaking of the narrow and hard path, Jesus will say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He is a good and gracious king, isn't he? May we encourage each other, especially when the path is at its hardest, to keep our hearts and our eyes as he, on him as he leads us through the narrow gate, on the hard path, through to eternal life. Secondly then, the second picture is verse 15 to 23. Two trees and their fruits. Warning number two, Jesus urges vigilance against false teachers who destroy. False prophets were a relentless problem to the Old Testament people of God. And each of the authors in the New Testament letters warned the early church against false prophets and false teachers. And of course, the false prophet is so graphically depicted in Revelation as a beast who deceives the whole earth to false worship of the Antichrist. And so too, Jesus here urges with utmost vigilance 
against false prophets or false teachers. He was alert to them in his own public ministry, and he assumes that they're going to be an issue and a danger for us here in 2020. And so again, he's emphatic, watch out. A bit like at the golf course yesterday. If you're on the fairway adjacent to whenever Ollie and Ryan are on the tee about to drive the ball, I'm always shouting, four right, watch out. Danger will be coming your way. In all seriousness, though, we too much must be watchful of danger that is coming our way. We don't talk much about prophets today, but we do talk about influencers. We have got preachers and podcasters, pastors and thought leaders, singers, songwriters, storytellers, cultural commentators, best-selling authors, media personalities, all voices with a trickle-down influence. Be careful. Don't be naive. Who we listen to matters. And did you notice in verse 22, the false prophets might even have the lingo. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? They might even perform impressive, mighty works. In fact, the most dangerous have sheep's clothing on the outside, but beneath they are deadly predators. Jesus warns us. So we might hear, love wins. How can God's good purposes fail? Says Rob Bell as he distorts Jesus' teaching on his own death and God's judgment. God wants people to be blessed and prosperous. We might hear Joel Olstein say as he distorts Jesus' teaching on money and suffering. The message of the gospel is a radical one of Christian inclusion, says a priest at the General Synod of the Church of England as he distorts Jesus' teaching on human sexuality. The words kind of sound familiar, but the meaning is completely foreign and millions are deceived. And so... To be careful, Jesus says, take a close look at their life and character as well as their words and teaching. Good character is produced by good people. That's the axiom. Jesus illustrates it here with a picture from horticulture. I know some of us have only ever seen grapes washed and seedless in the local supermarket or figs in a Mediterranean restaurant, but I am told that they actually grow on vines and trees. And in Jesus' homeland, they would have been commonly grown in the area. And everyone would have known that if you want a rich, healthy, nourishing fruit, then that only comes from rich and healthy trees. Nobody would expect fruit from gnarly thorns and thistles. In fact, they're more likely to cause you damage. And Jesus makes it clear Again, looking forward to the final day in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Christ's turn of phrase here, the will of my Father who is in heaven, is a wonderful summary of all that he's been teaching us. The will of my Father who is in heaven. And there's our repeated word again, the one who does. That's the difference between a true prophet who speaks the word of God and a false prophet who deceives us. The true prophet teaches and puts into practice obedience to Jesus' word. There's no separation then for the prophet or the teacher between professional life and private life. How they handle money 
sex, power, how they act at home, at work, how they treat the vulnerable or even their enemies or, or how they respond to their own sin or the wrongdoings of others, does it match what Jesus has just taught us? That they have the truth will be evident if they do the truth. So if they do not believe in the absolute authority and exclusive salvation in Jesus Christ, or they don't put into practice his words, then beware, Jesus says. Now, I don't think we need to go obsessively heresy hunting, but we do need to be so closely familiar then with the words of Jesus and the teaching of the scriptures so that we're not conned. So let's be careful what's influencing us. It, it might be an unexpecting source. It could be through music. It could be through stories. It could be through what we listen to or what we read. But ask ourselves, is this person moving my heart to, to believe and obey Jesus' teaching? Are they teaching truth? Is this person modeling good fruit, the fruit that Jesus expects, humility, meekness, hunger for righteousness, a desire to be a peacemaker. We need to be aware because we need to be honest. We all at one time or another will want someone to explain something away, to justify our wants, our desires. We will want teachers who will support our building of our kingdom, not God's kingdom in us. But bad teaching, false teaching, does real damage to real people. So don't be conned, Jesus says. Heed the warning. Let us examine what we're listening to, what we are watching, what we're reading, what are our influences. And let's be rooted in scriptures and close to Jesus so that we're not deceived. Third, and finally, as we draw this series to an end, Jesus closes with his third and final warning, that of two men and their home building, where Jesus warns us of the danger of merely listening in verse 24 through to 28. In some ways, the two men in this parable have more in common than they have different Presumably, both of them build similar-looking homes. From the ground up, they have four walls, some sort of roof, doors, windows, and, and they're both going to have to endure rain and floods and stormy winds. So too with us, we, we've heard Jesus' teaching. We, we build, and our houses will be put to the test. But the distinction underneath is everything. The one who hears the word of Jesus and does those words is like the wise builder who digs deep and builds on the rock. Whereas the one who hears Jesus' words and does not do them is like the builder who builds shallowly on the sand. And that difference was fatal. The life not built on Jesus utterly destroyed and washed away. I'm sure many of you can remember the impact of the, the flooding we had in the summer of 20, uh, 2007. It was Britain's wettest May, June, July since records began. And it required the largest peacetime uh, British uh, 
rescue effort. And Wikipedia estimates the commercial cost to be 6.5 billion. It's no surprise then that the, the power and the, the suddenness of a flood is a picture that is often used in scripture to, to picture God's final judgment. And the foundations here, that the basis upon which we build, respond and invest in our lives, they might not be visible to others now, but it will be revealed at the final judgment. And Jesus knows what we do with his message will have catastrophic consequences if we don't do it. So even before that final day, perhaps we might encounter storms in this life that uh, sort of test the foundational groundwork, experiences that cause the sort of sandy patches to be eroded away and, uh, and shake the structure a bit. A bit like we saw in 1 Peter, like the divine refiner's fire can burn up some of the dross from what parades his faith, so too the storms of life in God's hands can be graciously used to point out the parts of our lives and personalities where we need to dig down deeper to build on the rock of Jesus through obedience to his word. You know, I can feel... I feel that these final warnings are incredibly appropriate in our current information age. We all feel behind the curve, don't we? We're overwhelmed with information, data, news, status updates, shared articles. And most news that we see day to day is no longer important or local, information that is less likely to be relevant. And so we've become numb to just all of these signals, these inputs that don't really call for us to do anything. In fact, the norm is to take in more and more information and, and, and quite frankly, we can do less and less with it. Whether it's social media, YouTube content, Netflix, streaming, entertainment, sports, news, WhatsApp messages, we just have a, a sea of information coming at us. It's relentless. But now we've come to the conclusion of the greatest sermon. Jesus himself teaching us solid truth, the divine vision for life in his kingdom. And oh, how easy it is just to read his words and it just be another information signal. But Jesus warns us this is not like any other piece of information that we will see or read or take in. It brings fruit it gives stability and it is life. And it's great that we're listening, but we have to obey. We have to do it. Let me conclude with a paragraph quote that came to me over the last couple of weeks from Eugene Peterson's book, Eat This Book. He says this, the task is urgent. It is clear that we live in an age in which the authority of scripture in our lives has been replaced by the authority of self. We are encouraged on all sides to take charge of our lives and use our own experience as the authoritative text by which to live. I am not the only one to notice that we are in the odd and embarrassing position of being a church in which many of us believe ardently in the authority of the Bible 
But instead of submitting to it, we use it. Using our own experiences as the authority for how and where and when we will use it. One of the most urgent tasks facing the Christian community today is to counter this self-sovereignty by reasserting what it means to live these holy scriptures from the inside out instead of using them for our sincere and devout but still self-sovereign purposes. Eat this book is my metaphor of choice, Peterson says, because we're not interested in knowing more, but in becoming more. This morning, Jesus' warnings to us, they are urgent, as Peterson says in his book. We need to eat this word of Jesus, take it in, in humility, in faith, and put it into practice. Heed the warnings. Get off the broad road. Beware teachers producing thorns and thistles and stop building on sand. Don't merely listen to Jesus and remain in danger of self-destruction, but get through the narrow gate. Get onto the harder pathway. Listen to nourishing teachers who model Christ-like fruit and dig down deep and build on the rock. Listen to Jesus. Put it into practice. So let's support one another in being disciple-making disciples as we allow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to change us through his word from the inside out. Amen. Let's just take a moment um, to consider these words of Jesus um, and then I'll close in prayer and we will close our service with the hymn and can it be uh, performed by the church uh, band. Father, as we close this series, we thank you for your life-giving word. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are our king, our teacher, and that you have opened up the way for us to enjoy eternal life. But Father, we ask that we wouldn't just be filling our heads with more knowledge, but that we would be becoming more like Christ. Father, we love the beauty of the picture that he has shown us of life in the kingdom and we long to develop internal purity that doesn't focus on external actions. We long for consistent moral living that doesn't seek for excuses or exceptions. That hearts that overflow with generous grace that don't set limits. That delight in practicing righteousness before you and you alone. That prioritize eternal treasure and trust you with our daily needs. And resist self-righteous judgment, but show love to one another. Father, we pray that you would give us the grace, the humility, and the strength to obey uh, the words of your Son. In his name we ask it. Amen.